I am sort of live at the Red House with a gentleman named Husto Triana, who I, Husto, I first saw you uh, on YouTube. I just, like, I watch a lot of stuff about Cuba, I guess, and for some reason you popped up on a Fox News clip talking about your experience. And I looked you up on Twitter, and it was like you, you were, like, there. And I don't really use Twitter that much, but I was actually able to get in touch with you. And anyway, I'm from Cuban descent. My grandmother's from Cuba, and I was really interested in what it was that you had to say. So I thought I wanted to take the opportunity to just learn more about what you have to say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what is your, where does your story start with what it is that you've been doing? Yeah, so um, I was born in Camagüey, which is a city to the east of Havana. Eight hours to the east, actually. And so I was born there. Then I immigrated to the States in 2019 after a family reunification process filed by my dad. We immigrated here first. Yeah. So <clears throat> is your family here with you? Yes, right now they are. Yeah. So you, I think, unlike some Cuban-Americans, and I don't know if you're, are you... Are you a citizen now here, or are you trying to be a citizen here? No, I'm a citizen. You are a citizen. Because I, um, when I got in, I was, um, I was a minor still. So, yeah, I got the citizenship as I came in. Very cool. Okay, so I think a lot of Cuban-Americans, they are inheriting, uh, in, like in my family's case, we're kind of inheriting a lot of our perspective of this conversation from our grandparents who experienced it firsthand, but you actually are somebody who are, you're, you're, you're describing an experience that is your firsthand experience, which I think is kind of interesting. So when I first saw you on the news, you were talking pretty much about sort of governmental and economic uh, beliefs that people have and how they compare. And what we're really talking about, it's like, communist states compared to America and what you see happening here. So what, what got this started to where you were like actually speaking out about your perspective on this? So, yeah, like basically I, I talked about it because when I, when you live in Cuba, you think that everyone else outside of your country, you think that they, they know what's happening inside, you know? But when I got out, then I realized that there were a lot of people here who had no idea of what was happening in Cuba. And they had this edulcorated uh, idea, you know, like of what so Cuban socialism is. And they thought that everything was kind of fine there in a certain sense. They, they probably thought that the, the only problems we have in Cuba are those created by the, by the American embargo. So I, you know, I, 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 when I saw that, I, I felt kind of afraid, you know, for the future of America, because if there's such amount of people, especially young people that cannot, uh, cannot realize like what's actually happening in a communist dictatorship and they are like promoting and sharing these ideas of these wrong ideas, I would say, then what, what can we expect from the, you know, in the future, I guess. Yeah. I mean, spot on. That's a sentiment that I know a lot of my family members share for those exact reasons. So you are right. I mean, we have been given, I remember some documentaries that came out some years back that it was probably, I think it was one of the Michael Moore documentaries about healthcare and he, pretty much kind of put out the message that that Cuba was was on up there in terms of like in the standing of the world as far as healthcare quality and i think that is almost the only the only like window into what life in Cuba might be like for a lot of americans they just think well well michael moore said it's this way so all i know about cuba is that their healthcare is supposed to be good yeah which is but, not true i believe you yeah and, which and is I not think, true because like we we actually have a saying in Cuba that if you go to the 
if you go to the doctor, probably you'll end up being like worse than than you get in, you know, because yeah. the, the healthcare is, I mean, it's free, but free, <laughs> not really free. Yeah. <laughs> because you pay for that with your with your liberty, with your freedom, and not only with your freedom, but also you know, as because everything is owned by the state, everything is owned by the government. They actually pay for all those services with your own money. So, you know, if they they pay everybody, let's say thirty dollars a month, then the rest of the money that should be yours because you earned it, they just use it for those services, and then they say that it's free. When it's not free, they're just using your money without knowing, without telling you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so tell me about I guess like given that. Americans and that's what you're kind of just getting started doing like what really is life like in Cuba as far as how it relates to the freedom that maybe you you feel like you experience in America so the first thing is that you have to be careful always with what you're saying which is which is kind of happening now in America too but in Cuba is like the next level you know uh, if you go on the streets and you let's say you're american you go to cuba and you go you ask somebody in the street hey what do you think of the current politics what do you think of your president what do you think of the communist party they will not tell you because they will be completely afraid and that's happening that happens you know um all the time in er, with everything related to politics so people which is funny uh, people is all the time talking about politics because they're usually they're criticizing the problems that they see in their country. For example, uh, all the roads are, you know, they're destroyed. All the hospitals are in terrible condition. The schools are also terrible. There's so there's not a, a single uh, thing in Cuba that is like actually good. I would say. So, but people would talk about this all the time. However, when you tell them this is because of socialism, this is because it's communism, they are completely afraid because they understand that saying those things can get you in trouble with the government. So they don't want that. Huh. And is there, sorry, are you saying even like, is this the case even behind closed doors, like in somebody's household or people scared to talk about these things? Sometimes, yes. Um, in my family, we would talk about it. Um, be, but because, you know, we were traditionally a more free-thinking family, I would say. But uh, most people are completely afraid of it. I, I guess, in, I also, I've, I met some other people whose families also talked about it behind doors, you know. Mm -hmm. But it, it's more, it's something more recent that kind of thing. It's more recent because in the 80s, it was more, more, more strict. It was more difficult. And even today, when people talk about politics, they tend to, you know, look around and see if your neighbors are looking at your house, that kind of stuff. So it's mm -hmm. like paranoia, you know? Well, that's the, I mean, like you mentioned, in America, there is a lot of new language policing going on but it's not really governmental you know it's more just like socially uh like controlled language but we're yeah. obviously we're everybody talks mad uh talks mad talks mad hate about the government and that's like totally free yeah. but in yeah. cuba you can't do that apparently no no not at all yeah is there and it's i don't know it's just bizarre to me that there's even like a social sort of a social policing of that that's yeah concerning. i mean because the purpose of the whole uh, they have something it's called fidel castro created uh, something called the cdr which is comites de defensa de la revolucion like uh, defense of the revolution committees or something like that so they they put one of those in each block each block each neighborhood mm. And the role of that institution is basically controlling everything about the lives of the, of the citizens. So they would report everything you do. Um, what things you buy? Who do you talk to? Um, where do you go to work? What are your relationships? 
that, that kind of thing they control. For example, if you had a friend that was against the government, then you have a problem too. So it's, it's even, I mean, that kind of thing even breaks the family, you know, because uh, people don't want to have trouble and they are so afraid that if one family member does something that is, you know, prejudicial for them, like they put them in a wrong place against the government, they wouldn't stop to talk to that person. So it's all about ostracizing the, the people who are against the government. It's about making them, it's like cancel culture, but you know, at, at a huge level, like yeah, more and more, I would say, dark. Absolutely. I mean, that's that sounds exactly like the way that um, the way that the Soviet Union was was uh, being handled under Stalin. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Today, today Cuba is a little bit freer than North Korea, but but it's like the same the same kind of feeling, you know. Oh man, yeah. There's a lot of disturbing stuff about what it is that you're describing. I mean, and the family thing you mentioned too. It's like it's so. I don't know, dude. My, uh, I was raised kind of in a conservative family, and I became, you know, like pretty. I found the whole liberal way of thinking very appealing and inviting to me. Uh, but over the last few years, just seeing how things have kind of taken shape and how much things have changed, something like when you mentioned family. You know, I think conservatives for a long time have voiced something about the importance of family, and a lot of people have not, um, like for me, that seemed like such an unnecessary value to voice. Like, of course, family is whatever. But now, seeing that truly, like, people, to a different degree, choose something like ideological commitment above relationships with people, that's scary to me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I don't, I don't really think that it's because I mean it's it's different. The the Cuban conservative and the Cuban uh, liberals are, I would say, they're different from the American conservative and the American liberal. There's like a difference there. However, I don't think that this issue about family and the importance of family should be about liberalism or conservatism. You know, it's more about like common sense. And and there's actually there's this war against against the family, against breaking this, destroying the bonds of the people with their families so they can create new bonds to their ideologies and to the government, like substituting the importance of family and putting more importance in the, in the huge family which they say is the government. Right. Again, yeah, just echoes of, of uh, the Soviet Union, man, like the artwork. I, I'm I remember like I'm just remembering oh like there's this iconic painting from the Soviet Union of like a gigantic you know ideal Russian laborer kind of like standing above the entirety of a town and you can see his legs uh kind of like down into the town and he's just surrounded by a swarm of of Russians and people hold holding like hammer and sickle flags and it's that it's like this false family idea of like you belong to the collective or whatever and yeah. it, it's they, they actually they make you believe that the, that the leader is like your father you know and that's that's basically they, they because communism is a religion it's not really a <laughs> i don't say it's a, it's a political ideology it's just a religion they just turn god into a human being yeah. And then made you worship him. Yeah. So it's the same with Fidel Castro, it's the same with Stalin, the same with Kim Il-sung, the same with all of those guys, you know, they Hugo Chavez more recently, they turned them into gods. So people right. would worship them. That's that's what it is. It's a religion, but it's a very, very sick religion. You're right, man. And the state in that structure becomes heaven. They they believe that the state turns into heaven if you uh if you obey the leader or whatever, same way. So, damn, that's a lot of stuff, man. So, <laughs> so you, so there's, uh, I have all sorts of things I'd love to ask you. One of them is like, I want to know where, 
I want to know your perspective on just like what's happening in America right now. And also like what, what you think people ought to know about this whole tendency to want and fantasize about socialism. Um, and maybe that would be a sufficient place to start or, or to continue. I mean, yes. So depends, you know, I have my views on very, very different, uh, very different problems in America that are happening right now, like the massive shootings and also cancel culture. Like there's a whole uh, range of issues in which I have some opinions. I'm still forming my own opinions about America or because I've, I have been here for a very little time. So I don't, I, I don't think I'm right now. I'm like, very capable of grasping the whole thing Mm -hmm. as I would uh, like, but especially with the idea of young Americans, uh, like their attraction to socialism and socialist ideas. I think that in the first place, it's a very natural thing because when, when, when a person is young, we tend to be very idealistic. So socialism is a very attractive idea. If you look at it, it's like, Everybody should have, everybody has the same, everybody is happy. And I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? But the problem is in the, when you try to apply those ideas to reality, you get, you get a dictatorship. Now, some people say, no, I don't want this, the Cuban socialism. I want Scandinavian socialism, right? Right. The problem is how did the Scandinavian countries got there? right because it's not real socialism what they have is social democracy so you cannot turn you cannot say that social democracy which is a state of welfare achieved through many many years and many generations of capitalism you cannot compare that to socialism which is what you get through collectivization you know of the means of production and is this idea we have to redistribute wealth nobody redistributed anything in finland So yeah, that that's basically the whole problem. That and you have these politicians like AOC saying that you know we should follow the the Scandinavian model, but socialism. You know, and they say this is socialism. That, that's not socialism, right? And now the, the another problem that I'm I was thinking about that the other day. You know, you cannot compare the United States of America with Norway or with Sweden. In the first place, because this country has huge amounts of immigration. And that's a factor that you cannot, you cannot let out. Mm-hmm. So immigration in a certain way, of course, is, it's, it's really good for every country. But it's also a factor that, that makes inequality, that creates more inequality in a certain sense in the short term. Because you have people who have been here all their lives and they have certain amount of, of wealth. And then you have a bunch of people who are just starting their new lives. Right. So then you have a constant state of inequality. And you don't have that in Norway. So, you know, that's, that's something that I'm not a specialist in the field, but I, I really think that that's, that's a factor that everybody leaves out when they're looking at how to achieve a welfare state. I don't think it's the same, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's weird. People talk about socialism as if it's a, a system through which people just have what they need, like it's a system of rights. But wh- what it really is is an economic system. And even in Norway, they have free market capitalism. That's like exactly. their... That's what their economy actually is. They don't have a, a nationalistic economy. And that's that's a huge piece of what people often miss when they talk about socialism is that socialism is nationalistic. And the great the hilarious part of that is that like the the, the people who seem to be identifying the most with the term socialism in the country now hate the term nationalism. That's exactly true. It's very confusing. And I don't I mean, yeah. obviously Go, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, when, when you go to a socialist uh, society, a socialist democracy, not democracy, a socialist country, I would say, like, when you go there, you realize that the government is all about itself. It's, you know, we have to form unity. We should be patriots. You should, you know, like, it's, it, it's extremely nationalistic. The, the Cuban regime is extremely nationalistic, and so were the Russians. 
because they create this sense of family. You know, the, the government is your family and you have to pledge allegiance to that, to that government and to your country, which they say, they, they turn the idea of country and nation into communism. Mm-hmm. So they mix those things. So that's why they're so nationalistic. They want people to believe that the government and the nation is the same thing. It's just a means of control, you know? Yeah. So when, when you have, for, for example, if you look at the very, some very old people in Cuba, they, they, cannot, they cannot realize that the government is something different from the nation. It's something that, because they were educated in that way. Huh. It, there is no way they can separate those ideas. So when they say, for example, if I go and say uh, the Castros were, were murderers, they would say, hey, how can you say that about Cuba? Wow. <laughs> and that's something that it doesn't happen in America. But I, I think, I mean, America is such a different place from Cuba. So you have, you have, you, um, you're going through another process. It's like the composition of, of your own society. It's like, because people here are losing the sense of, of nation, you know, that they, you have here a lot of people who, who believe that they're citizens of the world rather than Americans. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a long, that's a kind of a problem in the long, in the long run because extreme, extreme patriotism is harmful but if you don't have any kind of attachment to the place you are born, then that's another problem. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. then you don't you don't love. Yeah, and, and it's unifying. It's unifying to have like that at least understanding. Because what that is, it seems, what patriotism is, is something like we agree to the terms of this parameter within what that that defines where we live, and it, at least it at least gives you that option to consider yourself part of a collective that actually affects other people and that like is unified with other people instead of at war with other people. It's the same idea as being a part of a tribe. It's just you have a nationwide tribe that you're a part of and maybe that makes you a little less likely to want to conquer other people or whatever. You know, if when you don't have that at all, and I think as we are seeing play out in society that when you don't have that at all and you reject that entirely, all it breeds is this thing like whatever cancel culture might be related to or whatever, whatever is happening now where all they the only way people relate to each other is through outrage and like hatred for whoever they can identify as like a, the new problem, whether it's Dave fucking Chappelle or whether it's Joe Rogan or whether it's whoever it is, Elon Musk. I see that you mention Elon Musk sometimes with your mm-hmm. sort of being like, why does everybody hate this guy? And I, and I feel the same way. Um, yeah, it, I, I feel like that is part of those things are related, like people's unending hatred for celebrities is super related to their hatred for patriotism or their distance from patriotism. Yeah, so they, they are changing the because at, la, at the end, in the, you know, at the bottom, people are all the same and we have or the same urges. We have the same natural instincts. So when you don't have patriotism, then you you just. All this love that you have, that you need to give it to something that would be your country, then you just give it to an ideology. Right. That's it. That's it. You're you are not separate. You are not different from the rest. You are not saying, "Oh, I'm more I'm more progressive just because I don't I don't love America. I love socialism." It's exactly it's the same thing. It's just an idea now. Then you have to look at what your ideas and the things that you are loving create i agree so completely man i uh i I stumbled upon the the idea of ideology a few years back and i became convinced like that that was the thing to worry about that was the thing to avoid and i have like i've put in I've, i've just for years i've sat around this house trying to put into words figure out how to articulate how i feel about ideology and it's something very close to all of that, man. It's like people have people have an option to not give that part of themselves. Call it love, call it their identity, call it whatever. 
they have the option to not put that in an ideology and everyone I see around me for the most part that is like operating as a bitter actor that's the that's the thing that I notice is so that they're so possessed by is they have just given everything they have to being a liberal or to being a socialist or to being a this ist or whatever just some identity that demands all of their mental capacity the problem is the problem is the difficult thing for a person is to not be partisan is to to be commonsensical mm. and to to get rid of ideologies to just think by yourself that's the most difficult thing that's you know because the easy thing is just to go with the flow to follow a certain group of people and feel like accepted and feel like family and always feel like that because we have that we have that need now the most i would say the most intelligent people are the ones who are able to to see you know okay these people here have these ideas and i agree with some of them and this other group have these other kind of ideas and i agree with some of them too yeah not going not being you know not following an ideology like if it were a part of yourself you have to be an individual in the in the at the end you know and you have to defend your, your own right to to think. Well, you it'd be best if you did, you know. I I 100% believe that it is best for people to really become an individual. Uh and I, but you know, I I like to think that people will mature to a place where they do that and like that it's natural to become an individual, but from what I can tell, man, there's like people much older than us and be like that just stay in that place forever and that 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 never depart from groupthink yes uh, i think i read something about it uh, i don't know if it were if it was jordan peterson and and he said something like um you know when you allowed an ideology to become part of your identity then you're in trouble because any idea that threatens that ideology then it's it's threatening you too yeah. So when you adopt uh, an ideology, then you are just allowing um, any idea that goes against that ideology to affect you, and you you should not like be like that. You should be able to to accept or even change your mind. Yeah. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with that. I've changed my my mind a lot of times, and even today I'm just learning and learning and learning and just. Getting things and judge them, uh, judging them from a from a neutral point of view, and then say, okay, I think this is the best thing. But if you allow if you allow an ideology to decide what's the best thing, then you are just part of a problem. Well, I completely agree with your assessment of like what ideology does to people, and and this is what's so fun about talking. It's very full circle because. Uh, I think part of like, I mean, the, this this whole conversation about Cuba, on, uh, Cuba and communism and ideology has been a major part of my life, uh, and one of the authors who really helped me shape a lot of the terminology around it was was Jordan Peterson, and that was because, from what I can tell, a, a huge influence for him was, uh, or a huge source of information was the Gulag Archipelago, which was all about, you know where communism as we know it today really took hold economically and politically in the world in the Soviet Union. So it's just very full circle for me. Um, and I, I guess I was, I was kind of curious, like how you got introduced to Peterson and like, you know, just, I guess I just wanted to hear about that. <laughs> to be honest, I don't remember how it was. It definitely was when I came here to the States, but I don't, I don't remember like a single first time, you know, it was like not a single first time, but uh, first time. I don't remember a first time of, of like seeing, a, uh, watching a Peterson video, but maybe it was just YouTube recommendations. You know, it was just 
okay, let me see what this guy is saying. And then, I mean, he's, he's very, he's writing a lot of things. So, yeah, yeah. but I don't remember like a, a single first time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious, but um, yeah. Have you, have you, have you tried, have you looked at all at the Gulag Archipelago? Sorry. Have you read the Gulag Archipelago? No. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's very very rough. Um, Who wrote it? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Oh, I've yeah, I <laughs> I know who that author is, yeah. and I was looking for looking forward to read something by him, but I didn't know that about that book. So probably that that's what I'm gonna read. It's tough, man. It's yeah. it's brutal, and um. And it reminds me in some ways of stories that my grandparents, my grandmother and her sister have told me about like when Castro took over um, to a way lesser degree. And I don't think they saw anything like what happened. You know, that that book is is almost as much as far as you can go as far as like uh, kind of torture and government control and just like horrible things happening to people. And somebody just having such a clear mind about like how to describe what all took place. Uh, but my grandparents, you know, they, they had stories of people they knew, artists in Cuba or people in Cuba that were just like gunned down or taken to the wall and shot and trying to I mean, flee or whatever. Che Guevara, who is like the, the one of the heroes of the, of the left, he was uh, like a murderer. He he was called the El Carnicero de la Cabaña because he would he was uh, he would kill like for nothing, you know. And I actually I met a guy, a very very old guy, who who actually met Che Guevara because he um, he went to to the to the mountains during the, the Cuban Revolution. So so he was. One of these guys who thought that the revolution was about bringing democracy back. Mm. So he actually would tell me that, you know, the things that Che Guevara did. And I, I know of stories of, you know, like for nothing he would kill. Like, you know, and, and then in, the, in La Cabaña, he would, once the revolution, you know, uh, took power, they would murder like innocent people, like just people just for being Christians, you know? Yeah. He would murder Christians, gays, you know, whoever he didn't like, murder. Yeah. So, but My he, friend. yeah. Oh, uh, well, no, no, I was, I was going to say like, yeah, uh, I think, I think that, that uh, Che Guevara is so popular just because he's pretty. <laughs> that I'm, co I am convinced. <laughs> I'm convinced. I'm really convinced. If he, if it were not because of his you know heroic face, he would not be remembered with that kind of you know love nowadays. Yeah. It's just yeah. damage. <laughs> <laughs> you are probably on to something. Uh, he makes a good T-shirt, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you know? Like I know you're not my uh, my grandparents' age, obviously, but. Um, you know, my aunt told me once that she, my aunt, actually, my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, she, she was part of a collection of people in Havana, I think, that were like called to some place where they were like teaching young kids oh, yeah. stuff and like, like, oh, we're going to teach you how to do these skills. And if you know, if you have any of these talents, like come and do them or whatever. One of my grandmothers, in fact, did that too. Really? Damn. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a very popular thing. It was like a campaign, nineteen sixty two, and it was a campaign that was supposedly meant to teach uh, people to read, and they did in a certain way. They did. They taught people who didn't know how to read to read and to write. However, there was a lot of political indoctrination that there too, you know, because right. the the examples they would use, for example, was like. Fidel Castro is a good man. He wants the best for us. You know, like that was the kind of thing that they were 
Like the Ugh. people who were learning to read, they were swallowing all that propaganda. That's scary, man. That <laughs> well, is- but but that's how it works. Like whenever someone wants power, they they want they in the first place the first uh, the first thing they have they do is just to control the hearts of the people. You know, be popular. Yeah, and that's it. So when you're popular, then the people do the job of the police. Yeah, they just right. they just uh, you know they. They inform about each other. Do you know what the like citizen reaction was once Castro kind of came out and said that he was communist? Do you know how people took that in Cuba? So yeah, um, well, I have an idea because I was <laughs> I was not born yet, but I I know that a, a part of the population was completely you know deceived by that they they and they were upset by that actually one of the generals one of the commanders of the revolution uber matos who was from my hometown actually he said that he was resigning because he didn't fight he didn't fight for a communist regime he fought to build a democracy to bring a republic back you know they they think that Castro had promised because he had promised free elections. He had promised all those uh, kind of things when he was in prison. That's how he conquered the people too. He lied. He, if you read his book and uh, La Historia Me Absolvera, history will absolve me. Everything he says there is a huge lie. And it's, if you look, I read it. If you read it, it's a beautiful tale of how the government would be once he took power. He didn't fulfill a single promises of those. And then, of course, when he said the the revolution was communist, then a whole bunch of people who had fought for the revolution, thinking that they were doing good, then they were completely upset by that. One of those was this guy, Uber Matos, who resigned. He sent a letter to Castro and he said, I don't want to, to be part of this. And then Castro said he was a traitor after he had fought for the revolution, after he was a commander, he said he was a traitor and he sent him to Yale like 20 years or 30, I don't remember exactly. That's how that shit goes. Oh yeah, like, but the problem was Castro was very popular and people, tend to follow the popular guy. And that's it. Oh, man. It's just so... It's so interesting for me, and honestly, interesting for me to get to relate to somebody closer to my age over this stuff, because uh, I'm just usually getting it from my grandmother and her sister, and so it's very... It's it's a privilege for me to be able to like talk to you about this and just hear about it, uh, truly. So... One thing I'd like to ask is I have I have many, many times fantasized about going to Cuba and trying to at least just go to Havana and yeah. like I'd love to go learn about music because I'm a musician and I would love mm-hmm. to go experience Cuban music for a while. But as I've researched, like one of the ways that Americans are supposed to be allowed to do this, allowed to go to Cuba is through a visa or whatever that that is called uh, in support of the Cuban people or whatever. Mm. A question I have is about like Cuban business people, like, like small businesses, if Cubans are actually free to sort of do what they will and want to economically, or is that also controlled? Well, they're not free at all. They, they are controlled by the government in every sense. And actually the government can shut down their businesses if they want. So that's how they control that they don't hire dissidents. They don't have, they cannot hire anyone who has problems with the government because they, they would lose their business. So yeah, if that's a question, no, they're not free. Now, they have a certain degree of freedom when it comes to, you know, creating a, let's say a little rent house or some restaurant kind of thing they can 
open the business and they can run it. However, they cannot expand. They cannot expand. They, they cannot grow. They cannot. If you have a restaurant, that's it. You, you cannot go for another restaurant and grow and create a company. There's, no, there's nothing like that. Really? No, there's nothing like that. You, you cannot become rich by your own means. Uh, unless you are from the Communist Party. If you're from the Communist Party, if you if you have family who are from the Communist Party, then you're all set, you're you're okay, and you can own whatever you want. <laughs> That's how so, it works. So with rich, so with, so like when we think about equality, what you're saying is like on an economic level, everybody's kind of held with a with a with a a limit above them. Yeah. So Cuban equality is basically one percent of millionaires who are the Communist Party and their families. That's the 1% of millionaires. And then the rest is just poor people. A certain degree, I mean, the problem is in America, what you call the middle-class America, that's, that, that would be our super rich millionaire people in Cuba. Huh. You know, uh, then a poor people in America is like the middle-class in Cuba. Huh. Of course, you know, like you have extremely poor people here too, but it's not the even as extremely poor people in America has more than the extremely poor people in Cuba, I would say. In resources and stuff. Yes, yes, in everything. So yeah, basically in Cuba, and what you call the middle class in Cuba, the middle class in Cuba cannot cannot even afford a car. That's the middle class in Cuba. You cannot, you know, you, you cannot go whatever you want when you want to. You can, you, you have to use public transport. That's the middle class in Cuba. So, you know, there's a difference there. You cannot afford to buy a house. That's why, that's why new generations live in the same house that old generations. It's not because, you know, it's not because we love our families or whatever. That's the narrative, you know. Oh, Cubans live all in the same house because they love the family. That's true, you know. We love our family, but that, that's not because that's, that's not why we all live in the same house for generations. That's just because we cannot afford to go uh, and to move to a different place, you know. <laughs> so also, also another, another thing, uh, you have Americans who go to Cuba and they, they say, oh, my gosh. Look how Cubans um, recycle. They recycle a lot. They use, they use these plastic things and they use it for another thing. That's not because we have any conscience of environmental thing. You know, it, it, it's just that we cannot afford more things. So we, can, we, have to, we are forced to reuse everything in, in the ways we can, which is good for the environment, but still it's not sincere. <laughs> you know, yes. it's not sincere so when you you get all those people and you put them in this society and they would not care at all about the, the environment because they are not recycling out of their own minds they're they're just doing what they have to do to survive that's interesting <laughs> like being forced into a lifestyle that is supposed to be what you yeah. think of as and of course then the, then the government takes advantage of that and he says and they say you know no, uh, we don't. We don't have emissions, and you know we protect the environment. It's, it's just because we you don't allow anybody to to do anything. That's you don't thing. even allow people to buy new cars. So imagine that. That is that is the thing. That is the thing that I find myself like a little bit trying to challenge among. Uh, I'll just say like liberals in a way because uh, I think. In America, on the conservative side, there's a lot of like that don't tread on me attitude or whatever. And and that whole like government can't like and it's it gets confusing if we take it issue by issue. It's like government overreach exists everywhere. And so it's each side has it. But what frustrates me sometimes is that like on the left in America right now, we have this odd combination of people who claim to really like hate everything that America seems to symbolize and represent and all this stuff. And yet 
they also spread a message like they just want more government to be more involved in more things. And it's like, which is it? Do you do you totally distrust and like kind of hate the government or do you want them involved in every damn thing we do? Yeah, exactly true. It's like Dennis Dennis Prager, uh, he said that the the urge of the people, the most basic urge of the people is not to be free and to be independent. It's just to be taken care of. Yeah. And it is exactly true. It's exactly true. That's if people have the choice, you know, of be free and independent and not get food stamps, but then be, you know, be held by the government in a state of poverty, they, they prefer the latter. Which is kind of scary. Yeah, it is. My great grandparents ran a church out of their house in Cuba, and uh, then when uh, Castro took over, I think what was it that they told me? I guess, I guess all the stuff got, you know, nationalized. Yeah, seized and. Yeah, the the same happened to a portion of my family. They they had some apartments that they rented, and they all got distributed. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they basically ruined the middle class. They they destroyed the middle class. They turned themselves into the higher class, and then they created a whole a whole bunch of poor people. But Do you know if under the dictatorship, the I mean, what was his name? Baptiste. Batista. Batista. Under him, that the economic thing that you were describing, like starting a business, growing a business, were people a what was what I wonder how to compare these things, you know? Yeah, like so yeah. So Batista during Batista's time, like he there was still a certain economic freedom. So people were able to create their businesses and to grow in a certain way. There was a lot of poverty too, but that was that was like commonplace in Latin America at the time. So, you know, people tend to compare, oh no, but during Batista there were a lot of poor people. Okay, but you have to you have to look at how was Latin America at the time. You know, you cannot separate those things. Right. But anyway, it still there was there was a middle class in Cuba, poverty was decreasing. So Cuba, Cuba, I think that Cuba had the second largest income in Latin America after Argentina. Really? See, yeah. So our workers were one of the best paid workers in Latin America, and we were growing. We had, oh. in 1940, that was 12 years before Batista, uh, Batista's coup, uh, we had a constitution that was one of the most advanced in the time and one of the mo- one of the most progressive constitutions at the time actually 1940s constitution but then we had we had like 10 years of progress decent government and then batista did the coup and that was the problem if he hadn't done that we wouldn't have had a castro in the first place so yeah, because Cuba was growing, you know, Cuba was Cuba was progressing in its way. However, when you did that, he just created Castro out of nowhere. He just he cut the natural development of the of Cuba. And he just forced some young people to believe that they needed to overthrow the government to re- to reinstate their democracy i mean any person even me if everybody if 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 we uh, were young people at the time of Batista's coup we would have been against him and yeah. that was a natural thing to do of course to fight against the dictatorship but because we believed in democracy, not because we wanted communism. Nobody fought in Cuba for communism. Nobody. The only, the only guys who were communists were the ones who were alive when the war ended. 
So they actually managed to be alive when the war ended. They were Castro, his brother, and Che Guevara. All the others died in battle, mysteriously disappeared. So, you know, they were, they got rid of the, of the opposition. And they turned the, the, the dream of the democracy into a communist dictatorship. That's unfortunately what happened. That is such a sad story. Yes, it is. And, and, but the problem, you know, I've thought about this so many times. Like, if we hadn't had a Batista, we wouldn't have had a Fidel Castro. Yeah. So it's all about the first guy who disrupted everything. No, that, that's not to say that Castro has no responsibility because, of course, he was a complete liar. And he, manip- he was a manipulator. And a, and a murderer too but you know yeah I mean it's kind of like it's kind of like the question of like Saddam Hussein or whatever you know it's like it, it was a it was a it was a catastrophe what was going on uh, while he was in power but then you know those folks and I don't know much about this particular conflict but there are a lot of folks who feel you know that like the chaos that ensued after he was gone was really the cost of, of, uh, you know, like that, that same thing, you know, that something follows something else. And that one catastrophe follows the original catastrophe, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, still, even when Batista disrupted the, the democracy, the, the democratic order, even when he did that, still, he allowed people to live in a close to normal way. Now, if you opposed him, he would kill you, of course, because he was a dictator. But if you just lived your life normally, mm-hmm. like you were able to have a business, you were able to, to live. You know, it, it was still a, it was still a, um, a functional republic yeah. without, without free elections. <laughs> yeah but still you know uh, you were able to live happily and that didn't happen because i mean he was an autocrat he was he was bad but he was not as bad as castro because castro what he did was he basically took over every aspect of society and batista didn't do that batista at least allowed some certain degree of independence among the among the you know the institutions he didn't get rid of the university independence you know universities were still independent he didn't mess with education castro took over education castro created this he created this uh, machinery of propaganda he turned the whole country into his country yeah and yeah that's it well that's that that reminds me of something i wanted to ask like i i know that the in the soviet union they targeted the arts and as an artist i've been curious about this like i see i see awesome songwriters come out of all sorts of countries and when i look for cuban songwriters and cuban music and stuff i mean i know about Buena Vista Social Club and stuff like that, but I I have a hard time finding music from Cuba from like the last forty years that's like uh, folk music, especially anything of people expressing themselves. You know, like uh, that's what, what I'm trying to get to is I w- I would like to know if if you have anything to say about whether or not artists and musicians like have the freedom to do what they will. Well, no, I, they don't have the freedom to say anything. That's the truth. Now, um, I do think that there, there have been like good musicians um, in the last years. They, they just have, have been careful about what they say. You know, they, have, they have been forced to find new ways of saying what they need to say. Mm. And, but also, like, when, you have a, when you have an oppressive government, then in a certain way that creates a whole new art, you know, new kind of art where, where you don't, you cannot say things openly, but still you have to innovate. Is there, 
is there a way I can like see? I would love to learn more about that. Yeah. How could I learn more about that? Well, I would say just <laughs> listen to music. Like, like Cuban the music. Cuban music, I would say. But I mean, if you don't know about, uh, if you don't know Spanish, then yeah, I don't know. I wonder too. How can how can others um, get that kind of thing? Now, because of this, um, because of this uh, repression of of open, you know, expression, there have been, for example, the hip hop in Cuba rap which is about drugs and whatever in america mm-hmm. and in cuba it's is basically against the government mm. it's just protest and that's the way they find uh, there's a famous uh there's a famous group called los aldeanos in, in cuba and they were one of the first guys who dared to call the things by their name they were they eventually left cuba but they they made a huge huge uh, change because they created music that was appealing to a young generation, mm. and yeah, they have a few very very popular songs. And yeah, they were in prison sometimes. They were prosecuted. They were wholly underground. There, you know, the government didn't allow them to 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 sing anywhere. So yeah, they, they created their whole their whole story underground, I guess. But no, they, they were not allowed to to be in a to go to a theater or whatever. They, they were condemned to be ostracized. And that's what happened with every every single artist that dared to to speak out. That is uh troubling, man. That's troubling. I have tried. I think I found I must I found some Cuban rap stuff that's probably underground shit that's like kind of politically uh, charged, mm-hmm. and I wonder if it's that stuff and uh, I don't know. But I mean, I I just that's something I really I hope this conversation drives home with people who might hear it is just like the how significant it is to imagine living in a society where uh, artists are controlled to that degree where they can be like imprisoned for counter revolutionary artworks. Yeah, in fact, no, but even they, people who didn't even say things by their name, they were sent to, you know, we have this very, very popular nowadays, very popular and very recognized uh, musician uh, called Pablo Milanes. When he was young, he, got, he was sent to, a, to an internment camp, to the UMAP, which was like a re-education camp people then he left that he he were he was able to to live but but he was sent there just because he was a musician that was not coming that was not communist not even because he was protesting as the government mm. his music was just not the, the he was not the communist standard he he sang feeling you know feeling music that was a threat. Actually, the communists even banned the Beatles. Really? Yes. They banned the Beatles. And they banned, they also banned every artist that left Cuba. So we have Celia Cruz, she was banned. Uh, Willy Chirino, he was banned. They, they just, you know, it was like, you are with us or you are erased. Yeah. from Cuban history. I mean, it makes sense when, as we've identified, it's like ideology in general, but particularly communism, is so antithetical to individuality, and music is so individual sometimes, you know? And something like the Beatles, the Beatles represent four dudes who took over the friggin' world, you know? And No, but like, they, they, they just didn't like the young people to identify with with four um, English boys, right. no, yeah. they they it was like American influence, even when they were not American. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they banned the bills, and actually, in that time, people were not able to have a long hair, males. 
males were not able to have a long hair. And that's one of the reasons why I always wanted to have a long hair. Mm. <laughs> you couldn't tell from looking at me, but I usually do too, but oh well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like they, they just crushed every aspect of individuality. So yeah, imagine, imagine a regime that doesn't allow people or males or females, whatever, to, to do a certain thing. Right. Well, okay, so two, I have two other things I need to ask you, and Zoom keeps trying to tell us that we've <laughs> talked for too long. Um, one question I wanted to ask you about was about a year ago or so, uh, you know, this big movement in Cuba started and marches in the streets. And it was like, I was watching that every day for about a week on Instagram until all of a sudden the internet in Cuba went away. And then I don't like, now I see stuff on Instagram. That's like Viva la Cuba or whatever, but it's not like, I'm not seeing the same footage. I really don't know how that shaped up, but what was your take on what happened there last year? So basically what happened was that the government allowed internet, allowed people to, to access internet in 2015 because they wanted money. They wanted money. So they said, okay, we are going to allow people to talk to their family outside of the country. But you have to pay a lot, right? So... Because people, of course, people are attached to their family members. They would pay it and they would start seeing how life was outside of the bubble. Mm. They start seeing that. And they also, that also brought a lot of Cubans to social media, Facebook, Twitter, you know, people who were not able to express themselves before. So they were just, you know, oh my gosh, this feels good, you know. Yeah. To be to be free to be able to say whatever you want. Now, of course, that was extremely that's extremely controlled, but still there are some ways in which you can bypass the, the government's censorship. So that opened uh, a who uh, a whole new window, you know, for people to to go outside of the of the prison island and to see how the world was. And that caused this. This caused a whole, a whole bunch of new, uh, a whole new generation that was clear about what was happening. My generation doesn't believe in communism at all. Mm. Most of us, I would say 90% of the people my age in Cuba are against the government. And that happened because of internet, because of information. And also because of internet is because is what happened what caused that once a group of people start protesting in front of the institution i don't remember which one but a, a groups or a group of people start protesting the others start filming and then they just spread the word and that's how you have a whole country marching in the streets against the, against the government on July 11th, 2021. Yeah. yeah. That's the story, yeah. I guess. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw what or noticed what I noticed, but, you know, when it, when it first broke, I saw people saying, and I saw people in Havana, I saw people in Little Havana, Miami, talking about uh, this shit is happening because people are fed up with the government. But then I noticed on a lot of media sources, all of a sudden the story was, well, the people are a little riled up because like COVID is being hard on the economy. Oh no, man. That was like really <laughs> that's that's just progressive, that's just very progressive news outlets trying to to trying to uh, send a message to the American people that all is because of the American embargo. Mm. You yeah. know, it's just to trying to spread this this taking the it's not that we need freedom, it's just that we don't have food. Are you glad that the embargo didn't change as a reaction to that? Now, to be honest, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really, that's, that's, that's especially a topic in which I'm very, very divided in opinion. Yeah. Because on, on one hand, 
I don't really think that you should economically help the government in any way. But on the other hand, I don't know if the embargo has actually helped the Cuban people to be free. So I don't, I don't really know. I, I'm trying to find that answer. You know, my opinion. Is, is this really is this really working, or should we get rid of it, or should we not? It's a, it is a really good question. My, you know, you probably know that for until like until the eighties, uh, the Soviet Union mostly was bankrolling Cuba, uh, and that like that I think once the once the Soviet Union fell, that was like I think when Cuba started bleeding money and everything kind of changed. At least that's my impression of it from what I've learned so far. And so my understanding of the embargo now, as it and the argument for the embargo now is that Cuba really, like with, with 2021 being a good example, the longer that Cuba exists in the state that it's in, the 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 worse the the weaker it becomes and the more the more unsustainable it becomes. And in that way it's if we play a waiting game, I could see us, I could see it eventually falling apart and, and something, ha- something major happening. But of course, even if you have that attitude, that's at the expense of the Cuban people, you know? And it's yeah. like, and it, also there's, <laughs> there's this problem. Like when you are constantly thinking about what you have to eat, you don't think about your freedom at all. Mm. And that's something you, you get to see when you go to Cuba. People are so focused on, on what to eat. They're so focused on their food that they cannot think farther. They cannot think of democracy. Who, who, would think, who would think of democracy if they have to feed three kids? No one has time for that, you know? So that's also a problem. I, I don't know, and we don't have time. Yeah, I, I just noticed our minute thing just went off. Um... Well, look, who's, uh, I, I, I will let you go, man. Um, thank you for doing this with me today. I hope I would like to stay in touch with you for real. And I would love for us to just keep conversations going and maybe we can follow back up on this at some point. Sure. Awesome, man. Um, whatever you do, keep me posted and, uh, I'll be very curious to see it and just thank you. And, and I hope we'll talk again soon, man. Thank you for having me. All right. I'll see you. Bye-bye.